You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, DJ Jesus 72, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Noah, Infamous Florida Man, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, M.D., Seth, Ghost750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time we introduced Captain Louis Guitar. His fleet of pirate ships, led by the flagship La Pa, was heading up the coast of Florida in April 1700. They were bound for Virginia, where they intended to plunder Chesapeake Bay. And we'll get back to the story of Captain Guitar in a minute, But first I want to turn our eyes east and talk about a pirate operating off the coast of West Africa. His name was Henry King, and honestly he wasn't much of a pirate, all things considered. He was a merchant, really, and serving as captain of the brigantine Seaflower out of Nassau. Seaflower was owned by the governor of the Bahamas, Nicholas Webb, and we should be careful not to confuse Nicholas Webb with Nicholas Trott. Trott was the governor back when Henry Every arrived in the dilapidated Fancy in 1696. He was the governor who certainly took some bribes from and probably colluded with Captain Every. Nicholas Webb isn't the same guy, but honestly, he's not much better. All of the pirates we've been talking about recently, from Captain Guitar to John James, Thomas Howard, even men like Nathaniel North, they all had dealings with the authorities and merchants of New Providence Island. 
Even in 1700, Nassau was already deeply associated with villainous pirates. And although it wasn't yet accepted, a lot of people considered her a lost colony already. Captain King's Sea Flower was carrying 8,000 pounds sterling, and almost certainly all of it was less than legal. Probably the intention was for that money to be carried to Webb's Holding in Carolina. There it could be laundered into what looked like legitimate earnings. Captain Henry King, though, made a different call. With all of that money in his hold, I think the temptation was just too great. He took the sea flower and all 8,000 pounds, and instead of heading north, he turned east, bound for Africa. This was Captain King's only real act of piracy, and we don't know what Captain King was planning, but taking 8,000 pounds sterling to Madagascar would offer plenty of opportunities. Maybe he had intentions of setting up a little trading post, kind of like Adam Baldridge had done. The problem, though, is that it doesn't appear that he told anyone in his crew what was going on exactly. It seems like for a good period of the voyage, they thought they were still, you know, doing the legally appointed thing. It wasn't until they reached the west coast of Africa, when King encountered the brig John Hopwell, that the crew started to suspect something was amiss. The Seaflower ordered the John Hopwell to stop, and she did. We don't know why exactly, we don't know under what circumstances this occurred, but it appears that it wasn't a violent, piratical affair. It's not even clear that the captain of the John Hopwell, a man named Henry Monday, it's not clear that he surrendered exactly, so much as allowed Captain King to come aboard. The pirates didn't ransack the John Hopwell, but Captain Henry Monday did hand over, quote, provisions, arms, and liquor. Now, Captain Monday probably didn't have any choice in the matter, but the nefarious pirate captain, Henry King, was kind enough to pay Captain Monday for the provisions. And Henry Monday accepted that payment, which turned out to be a mistake. Captain King offered the crew of John Hopwell a place on his pirate ship. And a few took him up on that offer, but it wasn't enough, so Henry King pressed a few more men into service under the threat of death. A few days later, some of the men on board Seaflower led a mutiny. Some of these were enslaved people who had been impressed into service. Some were sailors from the John Hopwell, and others were sailors from the Seaflower who weren't happy with how things were going. These men turned on the captain, marooned him on a deserted island, and turned the ship around to go meet with the John Hopwell. When the two ships found each other, they headed west, bound for Chesapeake Bay. There, they hoped that the governor would be understanding and accommodating concerning their brief foray into the world of high seas piracy. Everything, hopefully, was going to be fine. This is episode 321, The Success in Their Villainies. By late April 1700, the fleet of Captain Louis Guitar was closing in on the Chesapeake. Donald G. Chamette writes in Pirates on the Chesapeake, quote, a cruise into the Chesapeake seemed a good diversion for a crew weary of the sweltering tropics, 
and there the little pirate flotilla might take on water and make much-needed repairs. End quote. They were cruising off the coast of Carolina, about a hundred leagues from Virginia, when the pirates spotted the sloop George under Captain Joseph Forrest. Lepas stopped George and stripped the ship of everything of value. Then they made the men the traditional offer to join their crew. A few agreed, most did not. Those who did not agree to join the pirates were imprisoned rather than set free. This was different, to say the least. It was certainly not what the men of the George expected. That's not how pirates usually operated. Then the pirates lit a fire in the cabin of the George. They drilled a hole into her side and left her to burn and sink. Now this may seem harsh, and it was, but this had a certain brutal logic to it. The George was headed south bound for Jamaica, originally from Pennsylvania. But if the pirates had just let her go, they would have the opportunity to warn people that pirates were prowling in the area. They weren't that far from Charlestown, and if they told the governor about Louis Guitar and his fleet, the governor of Carolina might just send a fleet to deal with him. So the pirates imprisoned the witnesses and burned the evidence. The following day, another fifty leagues north, the smallest ship in the fleet, the Baltimore, spotted yet another ship called the Barbados Merchant, originally from Liverpool. The fleet hoisted sail and set off in pursuit, but the brigantine proved too fast for most of the fleet. Only the Baltimore, a one hundred ton pink, was fast enough to catch up. Now, Baltimore carried no big guns, but she had a complement of sixty men. So when Baltimore caught up with the Barbados merchant, Captain William Fletcher agreed to surrender without a fight. The Baltimore set about plundering the ship, but they were polite to the crew and even to the captain. One of the pirates, probably the quartermaster or maybe the boatswain, spoke to the assembled crew of Barbados merchant. He told them, quote, You sail in a merchantman for twenty-five shillings a month. Here you may have seven or eight pounds a month if you can take it." End quote. Then he proffered the ship's articles, offering every man the opportunity to sign up and join their merry life of freedom. All they had to do was sign. The men of Barbados Merchant declined the offer, every last one of them. At this point the mood changed on board Barbados Merchant. The pirates grabbed Captain Fletcher, drew their cutlasses, cut away his clothes, and proceeded to beat him with the flat of their blades. Captain Fletcher was screaming and bleeding and was very nearly beaten to death. One of the pirates, though, stopped the beating just short of his death. They left him on the deck covered in wounds and permanently scarred. Then the pirates trashed the ship. They disabled the rudder, which would be virtually impossible to repair while at sea, and then they started chopping away. They sliced off the bowsprit, you know, the uh, that long spar at the very front of the ship with the foresail attached. But then they started hacking away at the two masts on board. It took a while, but soon enough the masts were chopped down, cut free, and pushed over the side. Before departing, the pirates smashed the compass, took all of the books and charts and candles on board, loaded it into the longboat, and sailed away. 
Barbados merchant was left crippled, unable to sail, and adrift. Most likely, the crew who had refused the pirate's offer were intended to die slowly and painfully, but they didn't. The crew managed to fish their masts and sail out of the water and get them reaffixed. Then they set a heading west and eventually limped into a comic. Now, we have this story from the survivors. That's our only source on it. And it's often painted as evidence of the pirates' brutality, their thirst for blood, generally their barbaric nature. But I'm not so sure about that. No one on board the Barbados merchant died. They even got to keep their ship, and while they were seriously delayed, they all made it home. The captain had been treated harshly, and he would carry those scars for the rest of his life, but he got to live the rest of his life. That's more than can be said for some other victims of these pirates who were, say, hanged from the yardarm. I'm not here to say it was nice, you know, these pirates weren't good guys, but I'm not sure it was as bad as it has been portrayed. While the Baltimore was looting the Barbados merchant, the rest of the fleet passed on by. The flagship, La Pa, lit a lantern for Baltimore to follow, but Baltimore, once they were done, chose not to follow. They had standing orders from Captain Guitar to, quote, tend upon La Pa until they were in the Capes, that means in Chesapeake Bay, but that's not what Baltimore did. Instead, she just left. She abandoned Louis Guitar and the fleet. And we don't know why, exactly. There may have been some interpersonal rivalries involved, but I think it's likely that it was just because the fleet was getting a little too big. You know, a single small pirate ship would be able to mostly fly under the radar. And in the years to come, that's exactly what Baltimore would do. She would continue to harass the coasts for years and never earned the ire of, you know, the Royal Navy because she kept her aspirations small. But Guitar was building a fleet, a fairly powerful fleet, and that's the kind of thing that tends to attract notice. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. On 23rd April, 1700, Captain Samuel Harrison of Pennsylvania Merchant spotted a pair of sails headed his way. The larger of the two ships was flying Dutch colors, but she had her full complement of sail open, clearly trying to gain some speed. Captain Harrison did likewise. He thought it smart not to meet up with an unknown ship that was trying so hard to get to him and he actually managed to outpace the two ships, putting a fair bit of distance between them. But then he spotted a ship that was in distress. It was the Barbados merchant. Her masts had been cut down and were left floating adrift. Captain Harrison, a decent man, stopped to help this ship in distress. When he pulled up alongside and hailed the Barbados merchant, though, the men on board replied with an alarming bit of news. Those ships out there, they were pirates. They were on the hunt, and they just hit our ship and sailed away. Clearly, right now, they were coming for Harrison and his ship. So Captain Harrison ordered the Pennsylvania back under full sail, trying for top speed to escape the pirates, but that delay, slowing down, that had cost him dearly. He was never able to recover the wind or the time he'd lost. As the sun sank below the horizon, Lapa came up nearby and ordered a Pennsylvania merchant to strike sail. Captain Harrison refused, and he replied to the pirates, quote, Keep off or I will fire. Louis Guitar decided to do as he said. By this point, it was full dark, and he couldn't be sure that the Pennsylvania merchant wasn't carrying an impressive number of guns on board. It would be much wiser to wait until morning. All through the night, Captain Harrison and his crew struggled to get away, to, you know, catch a strong wind or pray for divine intervention, but nothing worked. They were unable to get any distance between the two ships. When the sun rose the following morning, Captain Guitar once again hailed Captain Harrison, ordered him to strike and prepare for boarding. To punctuate these orders, he fired a single big gun as a warning. Captain Harrison would later tell the court, quote, I did not think the ship had been so big overnight. End quote. Once he got a good look at her and her guns and all of those pirates on board, he struck sail and surrendered. Lepa began sending boats over. The pirates boarded their prey, and Guitar conducted a brief interview with Captain Harrison. He asked the captain why he'd failed to surrender the night before. 
Harrison told him that he was confused because, quote, there was peace with all the world, end quote. Of course, that only included the nations of the world, not these villains of all nations. The Pennsylvania merchant carried some relatively valuable cargo, of which they were relieved, but the real prize was to be found with the passengers. There were 31 people on board, all of them civilians. Now, there isn't any mention of rape or any other such horrors, so I'm fairly certain that all of the passengers were men. But they were all robbed. The Pennsylvania merchant was bound from London for Pennsylvania, and some of these passengers didn't have much at all. They were just, you know, traveling. Others were messengers, and all they had were letters from London to Pennsylvania. But a few were agents of powerful merchant firms that carried vast amounts of money on board. One of these men, named Joseph Wood, carried 900 pounds in hard specie, all of which was taken, of course, but he also carried nearly double that in the form of bonds and papers. Now, these pirates couldn't read, they didn't know what was written on these bonds, but they did have a very fancy, official-looking seal, and Joseph Wood seemed nervous about their being handled. So the pirates decided to toy with Mr. Wood. They tossed his bonds into the air, some of them tried to stab them with their swords, others tried to set them alight while they were flying all around the room. This put Mr. Wood in a state of great distress and greatly amused the pirates. But you know, even if they had been able to read, these bonds would have been worth virtually nothing to the pirates. I mean, who would they have used to trade them? It's not like they could walk into a bank. In the end, though, the pirates made an impressive amount of money that day. Harrison told the court later on, quote, Understanding they designed to burn my ship, I begged hard for her, but it was put to the vote and carried for the burning of her, and burnt she was. End quote. Do you remember from last time that Dutch sailor who asked for a ticket to testify his innocence? His name was John Hewling, and his captain, Captain Isaac, did indeed write that ticket. It informed whoever was reading it that Hewling had been taken against his will. However, over the past few weeks, it seems that things had changed. See, these pirates had enjoyed an amazing string of successes. In the past few weeks, they'd earned more than most common sailors could hope to earn over years of hard work. Every man on board was granted an equal share, even those who had been impressed into service. Now, I'm sure some of you have been wondering how a pirate fleet like that under guitar could survive when so many crewmen had been forced to serve at the point of a pistol. The answer is... Well, imagine it this way. Say that you're some disenfranchised, bedraggled, poor little peasant in a world that was run by unbelievably wealthy men. I know, I know, it's a difficult concept to wrap your mind around, but really try to imagine it. And then one day, someone comes along and offers you freedom from that system. They give you a voice, you know, the, the right to vote on your decisions, your future. They give you the right to not be beaten on the whim of some rich scumbag, and then they hand you a huge bag of money and a bottle of rum punch. What would you do? 
Well, John Hewlin had been converted to, quote, a great companion of the captain. He was the man that was picked to burn the ship, and apparently did so with aplomb. One of the pirates would later state, quote, it was the pilot's doing, guitar being no artist, end quote. Hewlin entered Captain Harrison's cabin, lit a small fire, and then plundered his wardrobe. He did so quickly, the fire was growing, but once he was satisfied with his fit, Hewlin walked out wearing a dapper new coat, stockings, and boots. Then the pirates and their prisoners returned to La Paz. Some of the prisoners were allowed above decks, where they got to watch the pirates go through their most sacred of rituals. They sat down, counted all of their plunder, and then gave every man his share. Now, this too was a piece of propaganda. It was showing that the pirates did actually all enjoy equal shares and good profits at that. Some of the prisoners, seeing this happen, may have considered that joining was the right move. One prisoner said that, quote, a parcel of the pirates were very merry. He talked about their drinking and even their dancing. He complimented one of the better dancers on board and concluded that, quote, this seemed to me a rejoicing for the success they had in their villainies. End quote. Five days later, on 28th April, La Pa and her two accompanying ships reached Cape Henry and entered Chesapeake Bay. That very same day, Governor Nicholson drafted a letter. It's an important letter for the story to come, so I'm going to quote it at some length. It begins, quote, Captain John Aldred, commander of His Majesty's ship Essex Prize, hath just now given me an account that there are three or four ships or vessels in Lynnhaven Bay who are supposed to be pirates. I do therefore, in His Majesty's name, command you that upon sight hereof, you give notice to the commanders of the ships and vessels in York River that they take care of their ships and vessels, and that you do immediately order the militia in your parts to be ready. End quote. He sent copies of this letter to commanders in Gloucester, Middlesex, Rappahannock, Lancaster, Northumberland, and Westmoreland. To the Colonel of Northumberland, he wrote in particular, quote, The Colonel of Northumberland I do hereby empower to press a good boat and send an account to His Majesty's officers in His Majesty's province of Maryland. They are desired immediately to dispatch an express to His Excellency Nathaniel Blackiston, his Majesty's Captain-General and Governor-in-Chief and Vice-Admiral of His Majesty's Province of Maryland. End quote. So not only was he preparing the whole of Virginia, but he was alerting the Governor of Maryland and asking for help. The letter goes on, quote, I do further hereby command all officers, both military and civil, and all other His Majesty's loving subjects, strictly to observe and put in execution an act passed last session of assembly against pirates and privateers. And I do hereby promise to any person or persons who shall take or kill any pirate now in Lynn Haven Bay a reward of twenty pounds sterling for each pirate that they shall either take or kill. End quote. Captain Louis Guitar had taken great pains to fly under the radar, to slip into Chesapeake Bay unnoticed, and he thought he had, but he had in fact failed. 
Now the whole military might of Virginia and Maryland, including HMS Shoreham, which had only arrived eight days earlier, was prepared to capture or kill every pirate who dared trespass in their waters. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Southern Gothic, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. You can find more of their work on Facebook, YouTube, Bandcamp, and anywhere else fine music is to be found. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.